Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 10.30 a.m. in the Boise Friends Church Gymnasium, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption. All right, good morning, guys. How are you doing? The bell has rung. It's time for you to be in your desks. If I see your phones out, I will take them until your parents pick them up from the office. There might be some exceptions. All right. How are you guys doing? If you have been lucky enough to not meet me yet, your luck has run out. My name is Kyle. It's good to meet you guys. All right. So... Today, um, I'm going to jump into a topic that I thought was going to be really easy. I've got this figured out. It's not going to be a big deal at all, which I'm starting to learn that when I take that attitude, that means it's going to rock me, and this one did. Um, I'm going to pray real fast, and then we're going to dive in and see where this journey goes for you guys as well. Father, uh, as I sat down to prepare for this, I laid it before you and asked for it to be your words, and I believe that it is your words, and I pray that uh, I will move out of the way and that you will speak to us today and that your spirit will move and transform us a little closer to Christ-likeness. Thank you, Father. We love you. All right. I'm actually not going to tell you what we're talking about. I'm going to take you on a journey with me, if you don't mind. All right, where I'm going to start is a really good place to start. It's right in the text. If you have your Bibles, that's great. I recommend it. That way you can tell that I'm not a heretic trying to trick you or something. Um, If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be up here. I'll be reading out of the NIV. I'm going to be starting off in Matthew 6. Uh, Matthew 6 is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, So you're hearing the words of Jesus. Sit at his feet. Listen to what he has to say. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, I'm going to jump down a couple verses to 24. Um, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Where it says money in the, the text, um, the word under that would be uh, mammon, which in simplistic form, I'm going to tell you that that's going to be Basically, when you take material things and make them godlike, idols. Now, as much as you could say, I don't have an idol, you're wrong. We all do. 
Um, it could be wealth, it could be your time, it could be your children, it could be lots of things, but we all have various things that are idols for us. Continues on, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. When Luke and Luke 12 is telling us this, he says, uh, consider the ravens. That will be important later to know. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Uh, no, you can't. Obviously, you guys know that science has shown it actually will reduce your life, right? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, and yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. Uh, you may remember, possibly, if you didn't sleep through my message I gave back in January, when I was talking about the wise men, we, we talked about Solomon and how we, we think of Solomon as great and rich and how amazing that is. If you read any of those Christian business books, they tell you you want to do business like Solomon. But we saw when we looked at the text that actually he took the things that God provided and hoarded them for himself, right? He said, this is for me. And now Jesus is comparing him to flowers and says the flowers are more beautiful He was not dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans, those who don't believe in and trust God, the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek First, his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen to that. I don't know about you guys, but this is a really, really hard text when I read it. It seems really simple if you've grown up in church or whatever, you've heard parts of this many times before. But stop and think about it. How many of you don't think about food for the table? How many of you don't figure out how you're going to feed your kids uh, or, or clothe your kids? My kids, especially Lila, I don't know how she grows so fast. He says, don't worry about these things. Let it go. Don't worry. I have a confession to make. I, made this, I had this conversation with Robert just a couple weeks ago. If you would like to know where almost all of my struggles and all of my sins are connected, it's to the fact that I worry. I am a serious worrier. I sometimes get insomnia because I'm worrying. And the funniest part about it is the things that I'm worrying about that make it so that I can't sleep are things that my lack of sleep are not going to fix. Um, probably going to make it worse. But I am a worrier. That is one of my biggest, biggest weaknesses. And here Jesus is very clearly saying, why are you worrying? Do you trust me? When Jesus is reflecting on this here, I am 
pretty certain that he is also has some other things in mind, some other scriptures in mind. Um, and so now I'm going to jump to Psalm 104. Psalm 104, um, well, first of all, we don't know who wrote it. It's, it's an anonymous one, so we have the psalmist here. Psalms are written in poetry. Um, as evangelicals, we don't like poetry as much because poetry is about emotions and being imaginative with the text. Imagine having emotions when you consider the text. But poetry wants you to do that. It wants you to feel... It wants you to use your imagination to process the word pictures and try to understand what would this look like. Your creativity does get to run free with poetry. That's the fun of it. God wants you to do that. And so as we look at Psalm 104, as we talk about these different parts of Psalm 104, let your imagination run free as you picture the things that the psalmist is talking about. I'll give you a hint. The psalmist himself appears to be wrestling with Genesis 1 and 2. So as we go through it, you'll see connections to the first couple chapters of Genesis. Reflect on the beauty of it. Who is God in this psalm? Starts off with, Praise the Lord, my soul. Uh, to help you a little bit here, when you see, uh, when you see, oh, this version doesn't show it. If you have a Bible translation, um, my copy here does it where LORD is in all caps. If you encounter that, if you don't know what that means, it's because there's multiple words that can come together to mean the word LORD, and the translators want you to know which one is underneath it. Um, in my text here, it's, it says, praise the LORD in all caps. That LORD is going to be Jehovah or Yahweh, however you choose to say it, which is going to be God's... We'll say it in a simplistic fashion. That's God's name. My name is Kyle. You can call him Yahweh. To call him by his name, that's pretty personal. This is relational. Let God be personal and relational with you. Praise Jehovah, my soul, with all of who I am. Praise you. My God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Splendor and majesty, those are royal terms. He is the great almighty king. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. Picture that. God wrapped in light like clothes. That's beautiful. He stretches out the heavens like a tent, lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. The upper chambers, that's going to be like his private space, his room. Guests come over to my house. I close the master bedroom door. They don't need to see what's going on in, in, my, in, in the piles of clothes I might have out today, or the bed didn't get made in time for guests or something, right? Nobody needs to see that. That's my private space. But here, as we're instantly beginning to talk about the creation, God has laid the beams of his private space right there on the waters. At the Genesis 1, we see the earth with its waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the skies and the land, right? Um, here we're seeing as God is creating all the spiritual beings, they're part of his creation. This is his starting point. And the word there for winds is also, by the way, the same word you would use for the Holy Spirit. 
the word for messengers would be the same word for angels. Um, the spiritual creatures, all the different things, they're all part of his creation as he's getting started. He sets the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. God set up the land, and he maintains it. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. The waters that cover the land, in the ancient world, the waters kind of, in their minds, symbolized chaos. It was their way of understanding chaos, which makes sense in 2022. We still have not fully explored all of the oceans or understood all the creatures that are there, right? So think about how it would feel a couple thousand years ago looking at the great oceans. It's chaotic. It's dangerous. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. Kind of reminds us of Jesus calming the storm. At the sound of your thunder, your great majestic voice, they took flight. And we see this again. We see this happening in Genesis 1 as the land comes out. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place where you assigned them. A great God is one. He, he provides order and structure to the creation. Yet, you set a boundary they, they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. We've heard that. The covenant God makes with Noah. He's, again, it's, it's telling us about this God of order and structure. But why? Why is he a God of order and structure? What is he trying to do? He makes springs pour waters into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. What are springs? You've been to a spring. It's beautiful, right? What was chaotic, disorder, something to be scared of, has now been turned into something beautiful, peaceful. And it's flowing into the ravines. What is he doing with it? They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. There's the birds, the birds of the sky nest by the waters. I wonder if Jesus was reflecting on that. They sing among the branches. The waters, he's turned them into something beautiful, and he's sharing them now with his creation to help it flourish. He's generously giving parts of the creation to help it grow. And this is my most favorite part of it. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. What does that mean? Uh, it's from his upper chambers. Well, if he's the great king that the psalmist already told us he is, his upper chambers, that's going to be the place where people are going to bring him the best of the best. He's a king. If you're going to bring him a glass of water, he's going to get the best water that's possibly available. Uh, an example I can think of would be um, if you've happened to see the movie Kingdom of Heaven. It's not very historically accurate, but it's, there's, there's a, it's a great movie. And um, in it, you have this character, Saladin, who uh, he's a great ruler, and people around him are dying of dehydration, but yet his servants come to bring him a cup of ice. That's what the king is worthy of. But what does this king do with the best that he has in his private chambers? He pours it out. He gives it to his creation. He waters the creation. And the land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. That word satisfied will come up again. Theologically, what does that concept mean? Well, think about the Israelites in the wilderness with the manna. They eat the manna until they're satisfied every day. He also gives them meat, and they eat until they're satisfied. 
They don't generate it themselves. He's giving it to them until they're satisfied. He's giving them all they need. But it's not just in the Old Testament. Look at the New Testament. Jesus feeds the 5,000 plus, and they eat until they're satisfied. Mark, it's just barely more than a chapter later, he feeds 4,000 more, and they eat until they're satisfied. Here it says, God waters the land, and it's satisfied by the fruit of his work. How generous is our great God. He makes the grass grow. Hey, there's the grass popping up too. He makes the grass grow for the cattle. Where before he was watering the wild animals, now he's providing for the domesticated animals. But he doesn't stop there. He provides plants for the people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Cultivate is another important concept. Genesis 2.15, God tells Adam and Eve to work and care for the land, to cultivate the land. He calls them in to partner with him in his creation process, and the Hebrew words under it in Genesis 2.15 are the exact same words that God tells Moses to tell the people in, uh, later on in the Pentateuch as he's telling the priests how to care for the temple and the tabernacle. Okay? It's priestly language. When we do our vocation, it's a priestly activity. When we care for creation, that's part of our priestly calling. Whatever it is you do, whether it's a teacher, you work in construction, whatever it is you do, that's part of your priestly calling to care for the creation and to develop it. Here, he's talking to an agrarian culture. When they cultivate their farms, they're in partnership with God who helps provide the plants for them, and it's the food that they're going to eat. But it continues on. What is the food from the earth? He lists it here. The psalmist says it's the wine that gladdens human hearts. Amen to that. Oil to make their faces shine and bread that sustains their hearts. An Israelite would look at this and know that those are the three leading exports of Israel. The things that make you great as a nation are all flowing through you from God. He's calling you into partnership with him and it's a generous thing that he's doing here. The trees of the Lord are well watered. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted. Israel doesn't have a lot of trees. Um, I always think it's funny when we called Jesus a carpenter. He's a tecton. He probably primarily worked with stone. A little bit of wood, but mostly stone. Israel doesn't have a lot of trees. They get their, they, when they want the best wood, they get it from the cedars of Lebanon. This is the best wood in the region. The best wood comes from God. There, the birds make their nests. Once again, we have the birds. The stork has its home in the junipers. Remember I told you that um, when Jesus is talking, that Luke tells you, he said, the, I think I told you that, it means that it's the ravens, it's not the, the birds necessarily. He's more specific. Um, if I didn't tell you that, I meant to. Um, ravens are unclean birds. So is the stork. God doesn't just care for the clean animals. He provides for the unclean animals. The high mountains belong to the wild goats. That's going to be the place where people don't go. So even the places we don't go, he's still actively creating. And the crags are a refuge for the hyrax, which is another unclean animal. I do have a picture of a hyrax, I think. There you go. So cute. It's like a, a marmot or something. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows when to go down. Time is under God's control. How many of us get worried about our time? God's in control of our time. 
You bring darkness, and it becomes night, and the beasts of the forest prowl. Traditionally, throughout history, we're scared of darkness. It's only with electricity that we get a little bit more bold. But even in the darkness, God is in control, generously providing. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. What is the lion? It's the king of the beasts, right? The great king of the beasts still comes to God to get its food. To God, it is a little house cat that annoyingly cries for food in the morning. It's no longer this great beast compared to God. The sun rises and it steals away. God controls that space and sets it up in its perfect space. And then the people go out to their work and to their labor until evening. Humans have their space. Every space, every piece of this ordered creation, God is actively working so that every piece in it can flourish and is generously provided for. And by the way, the concept there would still point back to the cultivating we just talked about, their labor. How many are the works, are your works, Lord, in wisdom, in brilliance, in craftsmanship, in mastery? You made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Do you see all along we're still seeing the steps of creation from Genesis 1? He's hitting all of those marks in this song. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number living things, both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. All right, I get to go on a tangent for a second, but I think it's one of the most important parts in this song. Leviathan. What do you do with Leviathan? What is a Leviathan? (laughs) That is a great answer. I'm glad you gave that. Growing up in the church, I was taught one of two options. A large crocodile, or that it was proof that dinosaurs were here and they dwelled with the people. And I'm going to challenge that and push back on it. We hear these answers because Christians want to make the Bible safe for us. We want to put God and His Word into our comfortable boxes, And I will be bold and tell you that that is not your right to do. He is king, not you, not me. And Leviathan did exist in mythology. It's a historical fact. The Canaanites and the surrounding peoples had this belief in this mythological creature called Leviathan that they were scared of. It was a big creature that they were scared of that dwelled in the seas. So you don't get to change history. It was already there. It's well documented. Besides that, if you really trust the word of the Lord, in Job 41, it says that Leviathan breathes fire, and I've never seen a crocodile in the zoo that is uh, shielded with, like, heat shields or anything like that. Crocodiles don't breathe fire. I haven't heard of any dinosaurs that they think that they did either. So what do I do with this? Why is there a mythological creature in the Bible? How is that truth, and how do I wrestle with that? The Leviathan, for them, stood for something that they were scared of, their fears. Not too long ago, I was having a conversation with a friend, and we were starting to talk about fears, things that we're afraid of, and we were laughing about the idea that 
most of the things that we're afraid of are completely irrational and illogical. I'm afraid of heights. I've never fallen any sort of significant fall. I'm afraid of planes. I've never had a problem on planes. Yet, I tend to drive a little fast, and I have been in multiple accidents, most of which were not my fault, so I should be afraid of driving, not planes. I'm afraid of spiders. Really afraid of spiders. Don't ask me to pick something up without checking the bottom. But the first time I was ever bit by a spider was just a couple years ago, so it doesn't explain the initial fear. Our fears are illogical. Let's get a little deeper than those. What about our fears of financial insecurity? The fears of our children, maybe something bad happening to them, and all the crazy protective measures we try to put in. Here's the thing. There's been times when our finances, Heather and I, our finances have gotten extremely tight. Sometimes we didn't know where money would come from. There were some seasons like that for us, and guess what? The bills got paid somehow. We probably have some of the best credits in the room. But yet, I don't know where that money always came from. It just somehow happened. My kids, we are extremely overprotective parents, but yet my kids have never experienced any sort of significant harm. Lila, we took her to the emergency room once because we thought she swallowed a battery. Um, little stinker, she pretended like she did, and so we thought she did. We, it, it, was, it was in a cushion, like nearby or on the floor or whatever, later on. We've never experienced any insecurity with our children, but yet I'm so overprotective. Our fears are irrational. What is Leviathan? The author of the Psalms here is saying, he's wrestling with this. In their cultural context, he's saying all these silly things that we're afraid of that don't really make sense and don't really need to be afraid of. He's, he's, he's putting it all together in Leviathan. And look at Leviathan here. Compared to God, it's frolicking like a puppy. Our fears are minuscule in comparison to God. God's got it. Our biggest fears, God's got it. Do we trust him to have it? Do we believe that he has it? I'll be honest, again, I struggle with that. But that's what the psalmist is asking us to consider right here. Is it truth, Leviathan being in there? Yes. Because my fears are irrational, just like their fears of a mythological creature is irrational. All creatures look to you, Lord, to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hands, they are satisfied with good things. So what do we do with this? Who is God? God is generous. With his greatness, with his abundance, he gives it to us. Uh, I would, silly, silly example. You have a massive bowl here, overflowing with more M&Ms than you could ever possibly eat without getting disastrously sick. And he says, take as much as you want. He's offering that to you. He's offering that to me. The question is, will we believe that? Do we believe, do we trust that that's who he is? Because it's really a big deal. It should really shape who we are in our faith. To trust that this great, amazing God who did all of this out of generosity so that his creation, especially including us, can flourish, 
our faith rests in this question right now. Do we believe him? Because if we don't believe him, Jesus compared us to the pagans, those who don't believe him. And that's pretty rough, isn't it? That's pretty challenging. But that's what Jesus is saying in that, that section of the sermon. Do you believe this? Because if you believe it, it should be obvious in the way that we live. When we struggle to believe this, we think there's a scarcity of resources. We have to hoard it for ourselves. The money that's in my bank account, I need to hold on to it because I don't know what might happen next. With my time, is it possible that I could fit that in? No, I can't fit that into my schedule. I won't have enough time. Never mind. I'm going to hoard that for myself because I don't trust that God will somehow make a way if he's calling us to that. If that's something you struggle with, I challenge you right now, join me. I'm going to say, Lord, I believe. Help me to believe. Join me in that if you would. If you, if you struggle with this with me, I'm going to say it out loud right now. Lord, I believe. Help me to believe. Now, there's a lot that I want to get into right now, and I had to totally cut it out for the sake of you guys might want to eat lunch at some point. But what I do want us to do is I do want us to consider what would happen really fast if we were willing to trust God and live our lives out in that way. When he says, step out and trust me, what if we did that? I'm going to jump to Acts and see what happened in the early church when they believed God. Um, if I recall, I think Matt actually mentioned this section a few weeks ago. He did a great job with his message. If you didn't hear it, you should. Um, I'm in Acts uh, 2. I'm starting at verse 42. This is literally right after Pentecost takes place. And it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And what happened as a result of their trust in God's generosity and their acting on it? Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, they broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. Have you ever looked at the heroes of the Bible and been like, that's cool that that happened for them, but that would never happen for me. Do you want to know why it happens for them? Because they trust God. They step out and let God do his work. Oh, we're not done. Don't worry, this wasn't a one-time occurrence. One last thing. Join me in um, Acts 4. It keeps happening. I could keep going, but I, I'll, I'll save you. Just one more. Acts 4, verse 32. All the believers were, in, were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. That's crazy. Nobody claimed that any of their possessions were their own. 
Would you be willing to let me use your car? Would you? Are you going to be generous, though? <laughs> this is a pretty big deal. And by the way, this is not like some political economic theory of, of communism or something. This isn't government imposed. No. This is a natural response to trusting God and his generosity. Nobody claimed that any of the possessions they had was their own because they knew that it all came from God. They shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Would you be willing to sell your house and give me the money so I could pay my bills? Crazy thought. For the Hebrew people, the Israelites, that would have been an even bigger deal. Because the land that they had been allotted, they, they took that pretty seriously. That was their inheritance that they were going to then pass down. Your land stayed in your family along the line. Held your place mark in Israelite society, in the history of Israel. So to sell your land is not even as simple as selling your house. That's pretty massive. I'm not asking you to sell your house for me. How does this work? If we stop resource guarding, if we start realizing that everything that we have comes from our great and generous God, instead of saying, I'm going to pass this off and let this go to the kingdom, I don't have to worry about Oh no, how will I pay my bills? If Zach and his generosity helps me with things when I'm struggling, and then if other Zach comes along and says, Oh, don't worry, I've got you. And then Robert comes along and says, Oh, don't worry, I've got you. As a community, it strengthens us, it builds us up, and the kingdom keeps building. All along the way we don't have to worry because we all hold it in common we all recognize that it all came from God to share with us so that we can be blessings to the nations can we trust in God's generosity instead of trusting in the world's scarcity can we believe Jesus when he says stop worrying about those things or are we still watching the ocean for Leviathan? This is really personal for me. This definitely has to do with questions that I'm wrestling with in my life right now, and I bet I'm not the only person in the room that, that's wrestling with this. But if you want to see God move in great ways, be willing to trust him when he says, step out. All right. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for us with a prayer that comes from uh, Ignatius Loyola. If you wouldn't mind uh, closing your eyes, joining me. Lord, teach us to be generous.
Teach us to serve you as you deserve, to give and to not count the cost, to fight and not to heed the wounds, to toil and not to see for rest, to labor and not to seek reward, except to know that I do your will. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org slash connection, where you can fill out the connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at Redemption Boise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.